0: Well, let's get right into it. First Thessalonians chapter 1 is going to be our preachable text today. It begins as follows. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. These are the three writers to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here, church, it says in, that's a preposition, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that, but this is being taken together grace to you, and peace. This book is not for unbelievers. This is a book directed to the church. It's very clear right out of the gates. Some of the messages of the Bible are directed more to the lost. Some are directed to both the lost and the found. This letter is directed to the found, to the church. That means there's a message here for for us, and it also means this is what we would call an in-house conversation. This is for the people of God getting instruction from one of the apostles of old as to what their salvation's all about, where it's founded, what the church is, what the responsibilities of the believer are, and so forth and so on. A few things just to get us going. If you go back in your Bible at some point, you're reading the book of Acts, and you find yourself in Acts chapter 17, you can read there the account of how the church in Thessalonica was formed. So Paul goes in with his comrades and he does, the text tells us in Acts 17, he does what Paul normally does. He goes to the Jewish synagogue because keep in mind, Jews weren't just living in Israel at the time. They were spread all over the Mesopotamian basin. He goes into Thessalonica And he goes to the Jewish synagogue and he uses the word of God, which they subscribe to, the New Testament and up and completed at this point in time. He uses the word of God, the the old covenant scriptures, probably better, it's probably better to call them the Older Testament because it's not old as an antique or out of date. But he uses the Older Testament to argue for the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are great numbers of people that are converted, and immediately they are attacked by the Jewish authorities. Immediately, right out of the gates, as this church is still in its cradle, in its infancy, they're opposed by the Jews that were living in Thessalonica. So, you know that fighters grow tough by fighting. Not by watching videos on how to fight, but by fighting. And thinkers get smart by thinking. And this is true of the church as well. Strong things are almost always forged in adversity. If it's easy, it might be evil. We live in times when there are challenges. There always have been challenges, unique challenges upon the church of Jesus Christ in different generations. It's no different in ours. You will be opposed. People will think you're an absolute loser for following Jesus. They'll question your intellect for following Jesus. Why would you believe in superstition, mythology, fairies, and fairy tales? People will attack your lifestyle. They'll call you intolerant. Notice how in a culture that values tolerance, there's not very much tolerance for intolerance. There's a lot of hypocrisy. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be attacked. You're going to get some pushback. You're going to be lied to. But that's not grounds for running and hiding. And it's not grounds for faltering and failing. Right out of the gates, the early church was forged in adversity. But we are of supernatural origins. This is what we got going for us. We are of supernatural origins. Back to the text, it says, to the church of the Thessalonians in. Now, this is peculiar language from a non-biblical perspective. You know, the Bible talks about us being in Christ. Like, if you think about it, that's peculiar language. How can I be in Christ? It speaks to our identity. It speaks to our origins. We are of supernatural origins. Our identity is otherworldly. And by the way, by including God the Father conjunction and the Lord Jesus Christ behind this singular preposition, this actually elevates and emphasizes the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not just in God the Father, but we are in God the Father and we are at the same time in the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the eternal God as is God the Father, and we know from other texts of the scriptures, as is the Holy Spirit. So this means that when we think of our identity as a church, we have to fight these cultural notions that we are, well, we're just a charity, or we're just a non-profit organization, or we're really not that important. It's really not necessary for us to do what we are doing today. Fundamentally, the church is the people of God. And our identity is in and because of the authority, authoritative pronounce, pronouncements of the Father and the finished work of the Son on our behalf. So, this is something for us to think about. The church, really, in that respect, is more than essential, it's supra essential. It is spiritually essential. And lest you question the importance of the church, you're now going to see some teaching here on how God transforms people through the church and uniquely through the church. And how the church is a uniquely transformed group in a category of its own. We can rejoice in the transformation that God has done in our own individual lives. And we like to, as Pastor Chris did today, I think it's important and suitable for us to emphasize our personal relationship with God. But let's not forget about our corporate relationship with God. Let's not forget about the fact that the church is not just you. In fact, in and of yourself, you are not the church. But collectively gathered, we are the church. We are the body of Christ. And we can see God's transformational work in his and through his people. So to begin with, why do we love the church? And what can we be thankful for today when we think of the gathered community of faith? First of all, we can be thankful that God's work equips us for good work. Our work is predicated upon the work of God. His work comes first. But God's good work in our lives equips us to do the good work that he's called us to do. Eyes back to verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. That word always doesn't mean just when things are going great or when you're getting along. You you need to have a lifelong appreciation for the church. The work that God has done. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Not just the ones you like. Not just the ones that don't ruffle your feathers. Not just the ones that are in your small group. But for the whole church. Constantly. There's another word of repetition. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father. Your work of faith. And labor of love. And steadfastness of hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ. We have no record, of course, of the specific deeds that Paul and his co-writers had in mind when they thought of the Thessalonian church. It'd be interesting to have a bit of a record of what they were doing. Like, what, what was the work they were engaged in that really caused Paul and his co-writers to constantly, always be praying, always thankful. We don't know, but we do have a record of their response. The apostles were always thankful. They were constantly praying. And then we're told, there are sort of three words here that tell us a little bit about the Thessalonian church's work. The first word is work. The second word is labor. And the third word is steadfastness. And then we know what they were motivated by. They were motivated by faith, love, and hope. They worked, they labored, labored for God, they were steadfast in their ministry, and their motive was faith, love, and hope. These, by the way, are the things that sustain you long-term in ministry. I've been in ministry long enough, I've seen all sorts of people come and go from the church. And I'm not just talking about coming and going from our church to another. I'm talking about people that have come into the church and are no longer in any church. The vast majority of men that I graduated with from Bible college have not been in ministry for years and years and years anymore. Most people don't last in ministry. Many people don't last in the church. It's not the minority. It's a massive majority of people that come and apostatize or fall away, and you're like, how does that happen? They were working, they were laboring, they seemed to be steadfast. The question is, were they motivated and sustained by faith, and by love, and by hope? If you lose those, or if you have lost those, it won't be long thereafter. You will also lose your work, your labor, and your steadfastness. Because we don't just go through the motions and do what we do because we're supposed to do what we do. We're motivated by the work of God and the spiritual fruit of God in our lives sustain us. Faith, love, and hope motivate and sustain us in our ministry. Now, as Paul thought about this church, and he saw within them these virtues, he just couldn't help but pray for them. As you think about the church, do you have high regard for the church? Are you pleased and blessed and excited about what God is doing in the church to the point you pray for it daily? Or does the church just cross your mind once a week or so? Do you pray for the church daily? If you want to take your cue from the New Testament, you should be praying for your church daily, constantly, which I would say is minimally daily, constantly thankful for the work that God did in us, which has enabled us to do great work, motivated by faith, hope, and love, to the glory and honor of God. Think about all the work that we are blessed and privileged to be able to do as a local assembly of believers. I got a little list here. I don't even know all the stuff that takes place in the church anymore. Oftentimes I pick up our community news and we were handing out print copies or digital copies. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was taking place. I didn't know that was taking place because we've set our church up in such a way for exponential ministry growth. But here's some things that come to mind. The work of a church loving children, some of whom don't come from loving homes, equipping students, high school students, university students, to think through the challenges and issues that they're experiencing in their secularized institutions of learning, buying food and distributing it, Correcting error in people's thinking or actions. Teaching parenting, both through classes and through mentoring and through one on one conversations. Saving marriages. I don't even know how many marriages have been saved here, but I know there's been a lot of marriages saved in our church. Warning people against error, shaping people's minds, worshiping God, being with the sick providing friendship to those that are lonely, comforting people in loss. And we've experienced some loss as a community of faith. Discipling new believers, caring for seniors, holding governments to account, visiting the prison prior to the lockdown. Our people were in the local jail every single week, ministering to both men and women, educating people, helping people to overcome sinful addictions, and on and on and on and on. That's just a short list. How can this ministry not get you praying with great joy? How is it even possible for you to not be revved up and geeked about what God is doing by his grace in his church and which he's equipped us to do? You know, brothers and sisters, we tend to pray for that which is precious, Is the church precious to you? I'm not sure. Well, just assess your prayer life. Assess your thought life. We tend to pray for that which is precious. What do you pray for? I'm I'm assuming if you're a parent, you probably pray for your kids because your kids are precious to you. I'm assuming if you value your job, you're aware that you need money to survive, you probably pray for gainful employment. Do you pray for the church? Do you pray for the people of God? And do you pray for the church constantly? It's easy to do. It's actually a cinch to do. If you understand all that the church does to the glory and honor of God. It's because God has worked in us that we get the titanic privilege of being able to do work and ministry on His behalf. We must do it, but we also get to do it. It's an obligation, but it's not a dry, stale obligation. It's a joyful obligation. It's an obligation we want to engage in because we understand the blessing that God has given to us. And we are motivated by our faith. We believe that God is sovereign. He's in control. His message matters. We're motivated by love. Our hearts are getting larger and larger for other people. We are seeking to view the world through the eyes of Christ, and we are motivated by hope. We are not pessim- We're not optimistic about human nature we 're pessimistic, but we 're optimistic about what God can do, and He transforms people into the image and likeness of his Son. We have hope both in this life and of course in the life to come. We are thankful then for transformed lives. Guess what? When God works, people change. When religion works, people might change temporarily. But when God works, people change. And this is why we want to be an open-handed church. We want God to direct us and guide us and descend upon us. We want to be humble and invitational. We want God to to come and do an amazing work, continue to do an amazing work in us. We're thankful for transformed lives as Paul and his co-writers were for the church in Thessalonica. Look at verses four and five. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you Not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake? We have some insight here into our soteriology, our doctrine of salvation. And here are some facts that you need to add to your soteriology that help you to understand even if you didn't fully understand at your conversion, that will help you to understand your conversion. First of all, it's predicated upon divine love. Brothers, loved by God. It's predicated upon God's love. You know, if you were a philosopher and you were asked to define God, you wouldn't necessarily have to define God as loving. The only attribute you really, really need in order to define God is sovereignty. God, by definition, must be sovereign. By definition, he doesn't have to be loving, doesn't have to be merciful, doesn't have to be forgiving, doesn't have to be benevolent. He has to be sovereign. That's all you really need. If you're going to be God, you have to be sovereign. But the Christian God, while he is absolutely sovereign is also loving. And everything that we get in life, all of the blessings that we get in life, and all of the things we hope for in the future are predicated upon the foundation. This is the basic. This is the footing of the faith. The foundation of God's love for us. Unearned, lest you think you got his attention because you're so awesome. Unmerited, lest you think you earned it or contributed to it. It's the eternal love of God manifest in space and time that caused you to exist and that saved you from your sin. Never, ever forget that. It's predicated upon the love of God. That must be in our gospel, therefore. Secondly, it says chosen, chosen by God. This won't surprise you if you've read the Older Testament. The chosen people. God selecting Abraham. God is an election God. He's a choosing God. People bristle at that. Why? Because they want to take credit for it. We always want to take credit for it. We think of ourselves as like spiritually neutral, given all the options, given the right circumstances. If the gospel presented to me thoughtfully, I'd probably accept it. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. History has proven that. The Bible teaches otherwise. You were chosen by God. This is not cause for arrogance. This is not cause for selective evangelism. This is cause for worship. This is what motivates worship. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about me. We need to repeat that to ourselves. Chosen by God, that's a biblical word. Third, the gospel came to us in words. I'm not opposed to friendship evangelism, but you know what? No one ever comes to faith just by watching someone really living like Jesus lived. People actually need to hear words. Lives are transformed through words. As I mentioned in my prayer, lives are transformed through words. How can they know if no preacher goes? You must know about Jesus, about sin, about his finished work on the cross. There's substance to faith. Faith is not, oh, check your mind, put it on the shelf when you come to church. Just clear your mind, right? No, no, no. A lot of us has crept into the church, by the way, from Eastern mysticism, contemplative prayers, prime example of this. People have this idea. Well, if I want to get in touch with God, I need to clear my mind. Never clear your mind. The difference between Eastern meditation and biblical meditation is Eastern meditation says empty your mind. Biblical meditation is about filling your mind. You fill your mind with truth. Truth is communicated in part through images and experiences. We have the Old Testament covenant examples of that in the tabernacle: the smells, the sounds, the sights, the imagery but the gospel comes to us through words. So you need to know the gospel and you need to be willing to speak the gospel, the fullness of the gospel to people in order for them to be converted. It comes to us through words, but it's more than words. There's power behind it. The power that comes, we're told, from the Holy Spirit. This is the power that brings about conversion. It's also the power that brings about equipping the power that enables you to do ministry. It's even the power that enables you to set your eyes on scripture and be like, oh, I get this now. I didn't didn't get this before. I remember reading this in elementary school or something. It made no sense to me. Now my mind is illuminated. This makes sense. It's like God's got his highlighter. He's going across the pages of the Bible as I'm reading it. I I get it now. This is a blessing from God. God. It's the power to overcome temptation. Not in and of yourself, but it is the power to overcome temptation. And on and on and on. And it's the power that God gives you so that you might experience conviction. We like to make this distinction in our church because it can be fuzzy in people's minds. They can think of condemning words as being the same as convicting words. Condemnation and conviction are not the same thing. The Bible says in Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those of us that are in Jesus Christ, for what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by sinful man. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering for us. So we don't preach condemnation in our church. We do preach convicting messages, and we want to be convicted. And we want to open ourselves up for conviction. Why? Because condemnation just leads to shame and guilt. And this continuing sense that you are lost. Conviction is intended to lift you. To point you upward. For you to move away from sin towards righteousness. And this is one of the aspects of the gospel message then. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. What does that mean? The liberal interprets it this way. Oh, he never calls people out on sin. No. No, that's not what that means. But Jesus did not come to condemn because he says the world was condemned already. But Jesus did come to bring conviction. Conviction of sin. So that we might be saved. And continued conviction of sin as found people. So that we might become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, how do you know you're saved? People probably ask me this more than a few times a year as I'm dialoguing with them. How do I know I'm saved? Now, the Bible presents us with about a three- or four-pronged answer to that question. So you have to have belief, and belief in the right thing. Jesus can't be whoever you want him to be. You have to actually believe in the biblical Jesus, the actual work of Christ, resurrection, hope. So there's content. You have to have correct belief. Fruit is a necessary and inevitable manifestation of salvation. So if there's no fruit, there's no conversion. doesn't mean you're not going to have days that are fruitless. But if your life is just not marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, you don't have the Holy Spirit, which means you're not converted. So you look for fruit in your life. But there's a third thing we look for, the affirmation of God's people. The text says, we know. As the apostles looked at the life of the early church, it was clear and evident to them, these people were not who they once were. We, had, we have seen change in you. So there's that those those affirmatory words from these spiritual leaders, both apostles and non, non-apostles, early church leaders. We know you're saved. And this is one of the blessings of being in the household of faith. We have correct belief. We have spiritual fruit, but we also have other people saying, man, you are not the person you used to be. I see change in your life. And I may not say it in that many words, but in conversation as they encourage you and build you up. They are affirming as spirit-filled believers that they see a transformed life. So spirit kind of testifies to spirit about the authenticity of another's faith. Can we be duped at times? yes. Are there times when people come in and they got the belief down and they got the lifestyle down and will later fall away? Yes. I mean, Jesus wasn't duped, but we have Judas as an example of an individual. The other disciples presumably thought he was the real deal, and clearly he wasn't. But we have this beauty that comes into our lives as other people affirm the transformational work of God in our lives. So are you thankful for these things as you consider your salvation and the work that God has done in our church? They point us to grace. If you think about human selection processes, let's say you're applying for a job or you're wanting to get married or you're just looking for friendships or whatever it might be, there's always processes that we have to go through, isn't there? There are processes that might include interviews. There are processes that might include lotteries. You've got to win the lottery to get whatever it is that you want. There are votes. You're applying for an office or you're running for a political office. You got you get voted on. There's applications to fill out. There's popularity contests. There are headhunting organizations. When we give other people the thumbs up, it's always conditional, isn't it? Did you fill up the application? Did you win the lottery? Did you get the most votes? Were you popular enough? But when we look at God's selection process, it's all about grace. Grace. Isn't that amazing? Electing grace, even before the creation of the world. Saving grace and space and time, the time of your conversion. And then we get sustaining grace to carry us through the challenges. It's about grace from the beginning to the end and beyond. It's all about grace. It's not, well, I, I won the lottery Alright, I won the popularity contest. I, I, I out-performed my pagan neighbor. It's all about grace. And therefore, we are a community of grace. What is the church? We are a community of grace. Think about that. Really think about that. We are a community of grace. Well, if we're a community of grace, that says a whole lot about how we worship. It says a whole lot about... It informs our treatment of one another. It informs our view of ourselves. I mean, this doctrine of grace is more than correct. It has titanic implications for our mindset, our relationships, our worship, our priorities, our schedule, everything. Because we are a community founded on and sustained by the grace of God. How about that? And now you should see how silly it is to ever question the uniqueness or essential nature of the church. We're not like anything else. We aren't a social club. The gathered people of God is more important than your family. The gathered people of God is not a charity on par with all others. We're not just some non-for-profit organization. We're not a business. We're not some institution that you just show up to. The church of Jesus Christ is a radical, grace-infused, grace-infested, grace-sustained community that is unlike anything else. Why would you not fight for that? Why would you not lobby for that? Why would you not want to be part of that? Why would you not call your neighbor into that? It's unlike anything else. But when we forget this, then we start acting like a business, or a religion, or an institution, or a charity, or some little extra to fill our Sundays. And it's disgusting, and it's sad, and it's shameful, because that's not the biblical image of the church. A national megachurch pastor on CNN just said this week, the Church of Jesus Christ gathering on Sunday for worship is not essential. He said, the church is essential. The work we do in the community is essential, but the, the gathered church is not essential. Really? Is it really like an either or? Is it true that we don't need to meet? Why, why would we have Hebrews ten twenty-five in the scriptures if we don't actually need to meet? It's not essential. It's like, well, we can sustain relationships without meeting. Really? I have not heard from hundreds of people in our church for months. Not a word, not a text, not a message not a phone call, zero. I essentially have no relationship with hundreds of people in our church right now. And likewise, because of my limited schedule, I've not been able to reach out to probably a quarter of our church. The church needs to be together. Fathers aren't good fathers when they literally never show up to dinner. Families don't sustain themselves when they never meet. Meeting is essential to the nature of the church. It's a place where we are refreshed. It's a place where we are informed. It's a place where the people of God experience the manifest presence of God, descend upon them, and do a miraculous work in them. And maybe you come from a church where you don't even know what that looks like or feels like because you haven't experienced that, but you will experience that here. As you lean in and worship and you participate in the life of the church, and you surrender yourself one to another because we are absolutely committed to the one another's and to the essential nature of what it means to be a New Testament people of God. We are a community sustained by grace. We have been transformed. And here's how this works. This is the third point. We're thankful that transformed people transform people. When God transforms us, guess what? He uses us to transform others. You're like, ah, it's just I thought you just said it's all about God. No, I didn't say that. It's sustained and founded on the foundation of God. But in God's sovereign plan, he uses his people transformed by his grace to transform people by his grace. If you look back at verses 6 and following, the Bible teaches us, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Have you ever had the super pious Christians say, I don't need other Christians in my life? I just, it's just me and Jesus hanging out on an island with you know, daiquiris and palm branches and shades on. We're just, I'm just chilling with Jesus at home. Me and Jesus, we're, we're just fine by ourselves. This is such a polluted understanding of what it means to be a Christian. The early church leaders were not afraid. They weren't shy Canadians. They weren't afraid to say, hey, you know what? You should actually act like me. Well, that sounds kind of arrogant. Well, you should act like me because I'm acting like Jesus. You should live like me. Church, the Christian faith is an imitative faith. You need to understand this. It's not a Lone Ranger faith. It's an imitative faith. Look at the text. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. There's that opposition again they're referring to. With the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers. There's another word of imitation. Example. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. These are like regions surrounding that area. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you just one church founded in affliction in Macedonia and Achaia, but Your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I think there's at least four transformational facts here. Again, the first one is this Christianity is an imitative faith. It is both received by means of imitation and it is offered by means of imitation. This is why we're always like super concerned about hypocrisy. This is why, as much as possible, moving away from hypocrisy is kind of important. Because you can have the words, but if you're a hypocrite, people are like, I'm not, your example is so lousy. I don't want to hear what you say. So we concern ourselves with our example. We concern ourselves with imitating Christ. that others can say, oh, this man or woman is actually a godly example. I, I want to act like them. I want to think like them. I want to speak like them. I want to prioritize my life like them. I want to be married like them. I want to raise my kids like them. I want to spend my money like them. I want to work like them. It's an imitative faith. And a little message to parents. This is why it's so critical that you do your best to imitate biblical faith, the personal work of Christ in front of your children. And for you as a broken human, as for me, that's also going to mean humility and admitting when we blew it. Not just imitating in the high points, but also saying, okay, I got to sit you guys down. I like totally blew it there. I'm an idiot. And I apologize. The Christian faith is an imitative faith. We receive it because we look to the example of others and we offer it in the same way. Secondly, apparently affliction is no hindrance to receiving the word. It says it was received in affliction. They lived it out in affliction. We think, well, if there's pushback, how are we going to get the message out? We push ahead. We don't retreat. We don't cower. We don't bow down. Affliction has been known throughout the history of the church to accelerate its growth. It's funny how the devil hasn't learned that lesson yet because he loves to afflict the church. And yes, certain parts of the church are going to fail. But the church afflicted can be a, church, a very powerful church too. And take that lesson to heart in your own life. Because I don't like to be afflicted, by the way. I like life to be easy. But I know that I think more clearly. I am more serious about my faith. I am more thankful for God. And I pray more when times are tough. Anybody else in the room can say the same thing? So affliction is not a hindrance to receiving the word. It can accelerate it. Joy, also known as biblical happiness, you'll know from my preaching, I don't differentiate between joy and happiness like 99% of preachers do because I don't see that differentiation in scripture. You should be joyful, meaning biblically happy, happy about the right things if you are a Christian, and biblical joy or biblical happiness is not circumstantial. What is it then? It is positional meaning that it is because of your walk with your relationship to God. It's not based upon the temperature outside, whether it's raining or sunny. It's not based upon whether she said yes or said no to your proposal. It's not based on whether you got the job or didn't get the job. It is positional. You're a Christian. You've received grace. You therefore have reason to have joy or biblical happiness. Fourth, you preach with words and by example. I think I've already covered that, but we see here an emphasis on words, but we also see example words or testimony words. Um, Imitate, example, and gone forth. People actually heard about the work of, the ministry of the, uh, the faithfulness of the Thessalonican church beyond their borders. Keep in mind, they did that without social media. They did that without um, television. They did that without radio. Like their, their testimony must have been so powerful, it just spread, not just to another little town, but throughout regions, and people were equipped as a result. So how can we be a good example? Let me give you four things, and then we'll wrap her up. First is this. Be an example both in your strength and in your humility. So be an example in your strengths and in your humility. There's nothing wrong with letting people know where you have found victory in Christ. Nothing wrong with that at all. Okay, I could tell you there's certain things, I have them down. There's other things I don't have down. But I'm not going to pretend that I don't have certain things down and that I, you know, stink in every area of the Christian life. No, I'm very consistent and very on the ball and very Christ-like in certain areas. In other areas, I got a lot of work to do. So we can be an example both in our strength and in our humility. And a good example, by the way, isn't always dependent upon good circumstances. Again, you can minister out of your affliction, out of your challenges. And, and allow people to, to process with you your pain and your uh, struggles, the way that you handle weakness speaks volumes to people. The way that you handle your pitfalls speaks volumes to people. So be an example in both your strength and in your humility. Secondly, be an example in your thinking and your words, as well as your attitude. So it's not an either or. Uh, we we want to posture ourselves in uh, a way that we demonstrate we're listening and we care and we love. We also want to become better thinkers. Love God with your mind. And that's going to follow with being learning to articulate what you believe to be true and what God is doing in your life. You don't necessarily um, always win when you're right if you're not likable. So again, balancing the two, you can be right. We know a lot of Christians, maybe even a few in our church, that are very keen when it comes to the Bible. And what they often say is correct and right, but nobody likes them. Because they're vicious, or they yell a lot, or they're just... They're just not likable. Well, then we got people that are really likable and they have nothing to say. So when you're thinking of your example, you want to be an example in terms of your thinking, your words, but also in your attitude. I think we see both of that in the Thessalonian church. They spoke the truth, but their example also won the day. How to be a good example? There's a reference here. They turn from idols to serve the true and living God. While we always are in the process of doing that, are we not? We should be turning from idols every day. Idols of materialism. Idols of self-protectionism. Idols of worldism. All these things we trust in. The Bible says we don't trust in chariots and horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. And as the world sees us turning from idols and not trusting in the things that the average person trusts, and that speaks volumes. Of where, how is it that you're so confident and calm and steady and level-headed? Because I trust in the name of the Lord, my God. And then fourth, we have the hope of deliverance from wrath. You see that at the end there? Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This verse, by the way, is often discussed in topics about eschatology, when Jesus will come back and how that's going to work. Um, certainly in Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, it speaks of a great day of wrath. You can read about that there. That will come whereby God will take all the kings and the generals both the slave and the free, into eternal damnation because of their incessant rebellion against him. But God's people will be delivered from it. So chances are that is an eschatological reference. Maybe even during the time that we call the tribulation or near to the end of the tribulation, where we have the hope of deliverance from wrath. And because we have the hope of deliverance from God's eternal wrath, doesn't mean God's not going to slap us around once in a while in the here and now if we're acting dumb. But because we have the ultimate eschatological hope of deliverance from wrath, we act differently in the here and now because of that truth. We sustain our hope and our faith no matter what the circumstances might be. So I, this this message, I think, is just a huge blessing to my heart as I'm just reminded of these basic foundational truths about our salvation, who we are. And the essential work that we can do in our community, our example, our words, our humility, all of these things are otherworldly in a worldly world. They're otherworldly. They're, 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 they're unlike what we see in false religion. They're unlike what we see on the highways and byways of life. So let's, let's put our hope in the Lord once again. Let's trust in him. Let's rejoice in what God is doing in and through his people. And let's go out and act differently to the glory and honor of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords.